Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll do it with my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know something? Wall Street can be a pretty darn negative place. I mean, there's always something that scares you into selling stocks. Sell, 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 sell. When maybe you should be. Bye, bye, bye. Including today, Dow only advanced 35 points. S&P climbed 0.31%. NASDAQ jumped 0.64%. But it was pretty for most of the session. Fast example. We learned this morning that three Pfizer shots can most likely keep you from getting very sick if you catch the Omicron strain. And that is just terrific, right? I mean, this stage of the pandemic may actually produce something manageable for our healthcare system, especially with Omicron overtaking the more deadly Delta variant as the dominant strain in the world over. Now, you'd think that would be terrific news, right? Not if you work on Wall Street. See, the pandemic has prevented the Federal Reserve from doing what it normally does when the economy is red hot, which is raise interest rates to tamp down inflation. Take COVID away, and then the Fed becomes a lot less friendly. They know nothing! Now, some of you may be wondering why the Fed ever raises rates at all. I mean, why would they deliberately make the economy worse? You know what? That is actually a legitimate question. And we all gloss over it way too much here. But it's got a clear answer. See, they, they do it because they want to stamp out inflation that would otherwise wreck your purchasing power, lay waste your savings, make it difficult to retire. The Fed has to walk a tightrope between a healthy job market and stable prices. While I'm a lot more in favor of easy money than most commentators, I'm not going to pretend that inflation is no big deal. I mean, history is littered with regimes that got too eager to print money and made it borderline impossible to do business and wasted everybody's savings. Disastrous can often bring on things that we don't even want to think about. So, well, what's going to happen? When the economy's weak, they can give us a boost by keeping rates low. But when the economy's strong like it is now, and there's minimal inflation, meaning policies aren't, uh, prices aren't rising like crazy, they can sit on their hands and leave rates unchanged. And that is what our valiant Fed chief, Jay Powell, has been trying to do. See, he wants to create as many jobs as possible, especially for the downtrodden and disenfranchised. He's said that many times. But infl- if inflation is no longer transitory, and that was his word, if it's getting embedded into the system, and the economy's doing great with very low unemployment, then the Fed just can't stand pat 
Powell just told us that he's retiring the word transitory from the lexicon, which means sooner or later he's going to have to bring the pain on. And that's why good news is suddenly treated as bad news by the stock market. For Wall Street, the end of the pandemic means the Fed has the freedom to tighten more aggressively. That's why we barely got much of a rally, despite this incredibly good Omicron news for our health and ourselves. Now, I've never liked this kind of thinking. After spending 40 years in this business, I've learned how to be an optimist. Why? Well, think about it. Because when I got my start, the Dow was at 1,000. Now it's at 35,000. If I'd allowed every perspective rate hike to scare me out of the stock market, and I have seen many of them, my old hedge fund would never have gotten off the ground, and I wouldn't have been able to have this job and the good life I've had because I've managed to put a lot of money into the stock market in the old days. And I think that it's pretty clear that 1000 to 35000 is a pretty darn good trajectory. So here's how I view the pandemic from a stock market perspective. You need to take the good with the bad. The world is getting healthier and commerce is improving. That's good. A stronger economy will never lead to rate hikes. Eh, not so good. But the bad by no means outweighs the good here. In fact, in the early stages of a rate hike, the, of a cycle, the first tightenings tended to be greeted with some positivity. Because it's like the Fed's endorsing the strength of the economy. And people love to hear the Fed is saying good things. They really do. As long as you have that mindset, you can view what's coming with a clear head. Now, let's go over what could cause uh, other speed bumps, because, well, i got to tell you, there are more speed bumps. Well, first is Friday, when we get to consumer price index numbers. Now, this drives me crazy, even more than I already am. How these inflation estimates tend to be totally disconnected from reality. I mean, lately, they're almost always too low. I bet this time will be no different. But it'll be jarring no matter what. Within seconds of that CPI data coming out, we're going to be hearing that the Fed is not just going to taper uh, down their bond buying. That's that taper system thing that we keep talking about. But they're going to start raising rates and they're going to raise them ASAP. And that'll sound as scary as all get out. And the people will really start to panic. You need to keep a cooler head, though. Why? Well, for starters, much of the surprisingly high inflation numbers come from oil and gas prices, both of which have come down big from their highs. It's true that used car prices keep rising, and I don't know how to fix that without solving the semiconductor shortage because the automakers can't get the chips they need to make enough new vehicles. We're going to talk to Ford tomorrow in my investing conference, and you're going to hear that again. There's an unnaturally high-level demand of autos as people fear mass transit because of the pandemic and unnaturally low car production because they can't get all the semiconductors they need to finish them. But if the Fed raises rates, they will tamp down demand by making more expensive to get financing. Still, when you see the red-hot CPI, remember, we go through this every month. Second worry, well, we don't go through this one every month, Ukraine. If you've been following the news, you know that the Russian government has decided something has to be done, something uh, about Ukraine, which Vladimir Putin increasingly views as a NATO outpost. He thinks Ukraine belongs in Russia's sphere of influence. And as we saw seven years ago, he's willing to send in the army to get his way. Now, Putin's building up troops along the border. There's been a lot of saber rattling. It's hard to predict what autocrats will do, but there's a real chance he invades, betting our government will happily embrace appeasement. Wall Street would hate that because I doubt our government or the EU will accept that. And you never want a situation where nuclear powers go head to head. This one will sound very worrisome, too. I won't tell you to buy stocks in international turmoil and induce weakness until I see the response. If Russia does invade Ukraine, the stock market's going to get hit. We need to see what the damage looks like before we make a serious assessment. But we know that it's out there. Does it make sense to sell stocks ahead of this perspective event? Well, here's what I'm doing for my Chapel Trust, which you can follow along by joining the CNBC Investing Club. We've raised a little cash from some very big wins. Trust can therefore buy some of its favorite stocks, the ones I'll talk about at tomorrow's 1230 call. But, uh, but uh, if stocks get hit uh, off of geopolitical worries or hyperinflation fears, yes, could be a buying opportunity. But did we sell because we're truly worried about that stuff? No. 
took some profits because they were right to take. I'm an optimist. I've watched the Dow go from 1,000 to 35,000 in the course of my professional lifetime. I, I am concerned, but I am not worried. But we were very, some cash. I anticipate panic when other people get worried, stoke fear in the media. And I felt that bulls make money, bears make money, but hogs. And I was being a hog. Of course, I don't want to be too sanguine about inflation, which I do not like, or the Fed raising rates, which is justified at this time, but could be unpleasant further down, further down the road. I don't think rate hikes can do much for supply bottlenecks. It, it can't fix high shipping rates for the lack of truck drivers or all the plastic plants that got shut down by hurricanes. However, I accept that the Fed may need to break the cycle of price increases for all sorts of goods and services. The only way they can do that is with that blunt instrument of higher interest rates. So the bottom line here, as long as Jay Powell doesn't threaten us with a series of lockstep rate hikes, that's the worst. Lockstep. As long as he recognizes that some of this inflation is indeed transitory, not all, but some, then I think we're going to get some great buying opportunities, including one last thing down before the much-anticipated Santa Claus rally. Vinny in my home state of New Jersey. Vinny. Vinny. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I just wanted to check in with you on AMD. I I know you took some profits last week, uh, and I've been following AMD for about five years now. And um, Lisa seems to be doing a great job there. My question for you today if you could, what are your feelings about AMD going forward? And do sure. you think today is a today or sometime okay. very soon is right. a good Vinny, entry point? Vinny, you're absolutely right. I did take we took a little for the Chapel Trust off, but that was because we were being pigs. I mean, we just we've had such a big gain in this thing. The stock is up 58 percent this year. We've had it for a while. So we took a little off. I think that it was actually the right thing to do because it gives us the room to buy some back. If it does have some sort of 10 to 15 percent drop, it won't be based on what Lisa Sue's doing. She's doing a remarkable job. We based on fear in the stock market. And that's what I was trying to anticipate besides being anticipating the fact that I was being a complete hog. Bryson in Arizona. Bryson. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I appreciate what you do. Thank you. Hey, so this company I'm calling about uh, has a great moat around its business. Um, They seem to dominate in their space, and their services are essential to their clients. Um, So I like this stock, but their current P.E. ratio is a lot higher than what it's uh, averaged in the past. Okay. So, So with that said, uh, is it time to add to my position or wait? Stock is Lindy, ticker L-I-N. Okay, I was going over this with Jeff Marks, who's going to be on my call tomorrow with me for uh, the Chapel Trust, the investing club. And we thought it was very curious. You know, this stock went downgraded the other day and it actually went up. Now, this is a uh, what's an industrial gas company. We've had them on. They are uh, new CEOs to be coming. But what I would tell you is this is a company that is in- integral to all sorts of everything from green hydrogen to the oxygen that we get because of of, uh, of, of Delta and Omicron and all sorts of the, all the other COVIDs. And what bothers me is, is that the downgrade was basically saying, you know what, we, got, we have a new cycle. This is not the cycle for that. No, we're not buying that stock because it's a cycle. It's a secular grower. So the answer is I could buy some now and I feel really good about the situation. Secular grower, not cyclical as some imply. 
I can see us getting some great buying opportunities as long as Powell recognizes that some of this inflation, not all, but some is indeed transitory and doesn't threaten us with a series of lockstep rate hikes, which would cause a bear market. On Man Money tonight, Sweet Green hit the public markets last month. I know you love it. And after a volatile run, could the stock add some green to your portfolio? It's come down a lot, so I'm going to take a closer look. Then the market has been a wild ride ever since the Omicron variant began haunting investors. But is it time to be hopeful for an end-of-the-year rally? How can we tell? Why don't we go off the charts on the S&P to see what you can expect? And Edwards Life Sciences told, told well, it sold off, you know, really because of Omicron worries. I mean, these are hard procedures. But after rallying back, should investors take a second look at the stock? It had a fantastic analyst day. I've got the CEO, Stable Craven. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. As we pick among the rubble of the growth stocks that have been laid to waste over the last few weeks, how do you know what's worth loading up on? Now, we spent a lot of time talking about how to identify opportunities in the beaten down cloud sectors. But what about the other groups that were right in the blast radius, like the IPOs from the class of 2021? Who? Radioactive, right? Now, in a world where Wall Street's more worried about inflation and the possibility of rate hikes for the Federal Reserve, as I talked at the top of the show, You've got to expect money managers will pay less for what we started calling the conceptual stocks. Remember that term, please. As in, they've got a concept, but they don't have a well-defined path to profitability. The good news, though, here it is, is that many of these names have come down huge from their highs. They're probably no longer prohibitively expensive. Doesn't make them cheap, though, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that they're worth buying here. So let me teach you how to evaluate a newly public conceptual stock of company that everybody loves that debuted with a bang and then totally collapsed last month. Now, there are a ton of these, right? But you know which one I'm focused on? I'm focused on Sweet Green, the salad-focused, fast, casual restaurant chain that had the misfortune of coming public week before Thanksgiving. I thought about carving this one at the time, but the stock instantly became way too hot. So we decided to circle back to it, hoping for a lower level. And it looks like that, well, we've gotten one. That lower level's arrived, which means this one now is definitely worthy of consideration. Doesn't mean it's a buy, just means it's no longer trading at psychotic levels. Sweet Green's IPO priced at 28 bucks. Okay, so it's supposed to be right around here. 
Uh, it was above the proposed range at the time. Then it spiked to 56, an intraday peak. We're, fi- we're finishing, closing around 50 bucks. Pretty spectacular. Now, that's a huge move for a salad chain. Don't get me wrong. I, I like salad. Some of my kids are addicted to this place. But this kind of move is what you'd expect from a company that's disrupting an entire industry. And hardly anyone in the restaurant business can claim to be doing that. Salad as a service? Salad plus? I don't know. Smart salad? You don't normally see this kind of hype for a company that deals in leafy greens. Sure enough, over the next two weeks, Wall Street started freaking out about Omicron variant. And then the Fed, which erased the entire move in sweet green. And the stock, next thing you know, was back to $24 and change. Oh, man, this is why you have to be patient. Thanks to the growth rebound this week, whoa, it's back to $33. Right here, okay? And that means, though, it's still down 40% from its initial highs, which is what made me think, it's time to start talking about sweet green. I did that on purpose. Even here, though, sweet green's got a $3.6 billion market capitalization. Does that make sense? Or right, let me put it this way. I think sweet green's got a strong concept. This is an environmentally friendly, sustainable, often locally sourced salad chain. They talk about their food ethos in the IPO prospectus, which is the kind of thing that's carried a surprising amount of weight on Wall Street a month ago. It's going like a weed. It's pivoted hard to digital since the pandemic got going. The numbers look really good. The guys behind it are smart. What's not to like other than the price? See, there's a reason I say Sweetgreen's got a strong concept, though, because this one's very early in its growth trajectory. So far, they've only got 140 locations across 13 states in the District of Columbia. That's tiny. When you buy a stock like this one, you're not paying for the existing restaurant base because there really isn't much of one. You're paying for the future growth trajectory. Some of the biggest winners in the industry have been regional and national stories that started small and then snowballed into something enormous. So I've got no problem with hunting for the next big thing in the regional restaurant space. Again, I, this is, we're talking about this because I think it's darn interesting. But there are a lot of things that can go wrong along the way, which is why you need to do your due diligence with these super speculative stories. I mean, look, there's nothing different between when the stock's here and when the stock's here other than the fact that the market collapsed. I only have so much magic in my fingers, I have to preserve it. So how about the numbers? If you're looking for the next regional to national growth play, you know what? This one does it. Sweetgreen gives you what you'd want to see. Putting up new places all over the place. From the end of 2020 fiscal year through late September, they grew from 119 locations to 140 locations. Before the pandemic, Sweetgreen was generating $3 million in average unifying. That's fantastic. But by late September, they had recovered to, say, $2.5 million. Meanwhile, in the first nine months of the year, the company had 21% same-store sales growth, although that's coming off a very low base. Still, before the pandemic, they were putting up great numbers, 15% same-store sales growth in 2019. Those are really fantastic numbers. As for profitability, Sweetgreen had positive restaurant-level margins before the pandemic. Very encouraging. And after taking a dip into negative territory last year, these numbers are back in the black. With the world going back to normal, management believes they can deliver some impressive targets. Each new restaurant should cost them $1.2 million. Two-year cash on cash returns of 42 to 50%. Those are extraordinary. So I've got to tell you, I am torn here. On the one hand, sweet greens very much on trend. They're speaking the language of the modern consumer. I see lines outside the sweet greens when I go by them. Probably doesn't hurt that the company was founded by a bunch of Georgetown students in 2007. Hoya Saxon, go Hoya, whatever. On the other hand, capturing the zeitgeist only takes you so far. We've seen a bunch of these better-for-you food stocks that initially roared and then imploded. I want you to think about Oatly. Jeez, that was tough. Plus, I've gotten uh, kind of wonder, how big can a salad chain get in America? 
You're paying 10 to $15 per meal if you go to Sweetgreen. So it's not exactly a bargain compared to other fast, casual places. Remember, Wall Street often gets tunnel vision. Money managers will get attached to companies that are popular on the East Coast, especially New York City, while they ignore much of what's popular in the rest of the country. In other words, I wonder if the initial backers here were overestimating Sweetgreen's mass appeal. One other concern. You don't often see a restaurant coming public when it's losing money like Sweetgreen is. The other two recent IPOs in the space, Dutch Bros and Portillo's, both had similar trajectories. They roared out of the gate and then rolled over. But those two companies are actually turning a profit. Whereas Sweetgreen's losing money even on adjusted earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and an amortization basis, or EBITDA. And that makes this one much harder to own in a market that's suddenly a lot more skeptical about ultra-long-term growth stories and doesn't like concept stocks. Which brings me to valuation. How do you even value something like this in the absence of earnings? Well, this is a crude approach, but with its current market capitalization, Sweetgreen's currently trading as though each of its locations is worth more than $25 million. By contrast, let's take the best, Chipotle. Each of theirs trades about $17 million. Much more expensive than Chipotle per store. Of course, Sweetgreens deserves a premium for its growth trajectory, but Chipotle gives you the same sustainable food ethos without any operational concerns. It's a proven concept. It never skipped a beat even in the worst days of the pandemic. Plus, it makes roughly the same per store as Sweetgreen. That's a true comparison. If you're intrigued by the concept, I think you're better off sticking with something tried and true that's best of breed, and that's Chipotle. Bottom line, I know Sweetgreens already come down 40% from its post-IPOs high less than a month ago, and I like that. But if you really want to be in this one, I think you can afford to take your time because this might not be the best moment to bet on a nascent regional to national restaurant growth story. That said, again, I am a huge fan of the concept. I just don't like the price. Remember, price matters in Kramerica. And this one can be a lot more attractive and a lot less risky if it goes to lower levels. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, is a Santa Claus rally in our future? Kramer goes off the charts to find the market's holiday spirit next. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. get our bearings in this wild, wild market. The action of the last couple of weeks has been absolutely nuts, hasn't it? I mean, just one roller coaster move after another. And that kind of tape makes it tough to get your thoughts in order, even on more sedate days like today. I'm always telling you that panic is not a strategy. It almost always loses your money. But it's not just panic. I very much believe that if you want to be a good investor, you need to do your best to take emotions out of the equation, especially when the market's whipsawing up and down like this. One way to do that is by falling back on the technicals, the charts because they're almost purely quantitative. 
So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Mark Sebastian. He's a brilliant technician who's the founder of OptionPit.com to show you how the technos could have steered you right after the past over the past month, and, and a month and a half. And he, he also gives you a sense about what's going to come next. You know, we care about what's going to happen in the future, not necessarily what happened in the past. Remember, Sebastian's our resident volatility expert. He likes to analyze what's happening in the broader stock market versus what's happening in the CBOE volatility index. We call that the VIX for short, though it's also known as the fear gauge. Usually the VIX and the S&P 500 trade in opposite directions. But when that pattern breaks down, it's often a sign that the market's about to change course. If you follow this methodology, Sebastian argues you could have seen the wild action over the last few weeks coming. First, I want you to take a look at this pair of charts. This is the S&P 500 and the VIX going back to early October. On October 21st, the volatility index bottomed at 15. At the same time, the S&P was at 4550. For the next month, the S&P continued to rally nicely. But strangely, we got a powerful warning because the VIX rallied too, albeit slowly. For Sebastian, that was a classic sign that the market was getting too hot. When the fear gauge rises along with rising stock prices, it tells you that you could be in for a beatdown. Next chart. Fast forward to a few weeks later. The S&P 500 peaks and the VIX explodes. Here's the thing. As Sebastian points out, the S&P is currently about 150 points higher than where it was trading when the volatility index bottomed in October. In fact, from the peak on November 18 to the lows last week, the S&P only fell 4%. Over the same period, the volatility index shot up from 17.59 all the way to 31. Now, that's not the kind of volatility spike Sebastian normally associates with a mere 4% drop. The VIX was screaming that the world was ending, while the S&P quietly grumbled. That's because the self was so heavily concentrated in the tech-heavy Nasdaq rather than the more diversified S&P 500. If you want more specificity, the Nasdaq doesn't cut it. Really, the meltdown was all about the kind of high-growth tech stocks typified by Kathy Wood's ARK flagship innovation ETF. While ARK's only a $35 billion fund, its holdings are closely watched. It's an ETF, remember. She publishes all her holdings. It's really the most transparent thing. I get the holdings later if the market's closed. Remember, Kathy Wood was the best money manager in 2020. You don't get that title easily, even if she's had a rough year in 2021. She did win the Super Bowl. And I think she's got a great eye for what investors want from richly valued growth stocks. So now let's take a look at how ARK Innovation performed relative to the volatility index over the same period. Unlike the SP 500, it only took about 10 days for ARK Innovation to put a top out after the VIX bottomed on October of, of the 21st. Then this ETF gradually moves lower over the following three and a half weeks, dropping from 125 to 107. OK, at the same time, the VIX was rising from 16 to just under 20. Now let's zoom in on the on the past few weeks. Initially, ARK Innovation held up pretty well when the market sold off on Black Friday. Because we were freaking out about the new COVID strain, and many of these are stay-at-home stocks. But the VIX explodes higher, and ARK Innovation really rolls over right when the fund was liquidating stocks left and right. So you see that this goes... As Sebastian sees it, ARK Innovation selling created what he calls a negative feedback loop. 
They'd sell their favorite tech stocks. Then the many Kathy Wood watchers started worrying about what she'd sell next, which put more downward pressure on the same names. That causes more people to withdraw their money from ARK's ETFs, which translates into still more selling. No, she doesn't run at a hedge fund, and it's not people pulling out of her fund. It is people selling the ETF, which then reverberates to the stocks. So what's next? Crucially, after a terrific move earlier this week, Sebastian believes that ARK Innovation has now clawed its way out of the abyss. And it doesn't hurt that the volatility index has come back down with alacrity. Again, if you're watching the fear gauge to get a sense of whether or not this rebound is for real, the VIX says it is for real. We know these high-flying growth names, the Woodstocks we call them, were at the center of the blast radius when everything fell apart. But what does this mean for the broader market now that they're making a comeback? Next, well, why don't you just take a gander at the action in the S&P 500 and the volatility index over the past few weeks? Sebastian likes what he like, likes what he sees here. Even when the S&P's flat on a day like today, the VIX keeps going down rapidly. That tells him the traders are getting rid of their crash insurance. What the VIX actually measures is the implied volatility of S&P 500 options. Lots of money managers like to use options to hedge their positions. And right now, the VIX is saying that they can keep climbing out of their foxholes. Going forward, Sebastian expects more days like today. S&P's choppy. Volatility index keeps coming down. And as long as the VIX keeps falling, he thinks it sets, up, sets us up for what do you think? Yes, that Santa Claus rally I keep talking about. That should happen later this month. And it could send the S&P soaring from around 4,700 now to possibly as high as 5,000. So let me give you the bottom line here. The charts interpreted by Mark Sebastian have been a pretty darn good guide to the last few weeks. And right now, they're making him feel bullish about the S&P 500 through the end of the year. I think I agree with them. Let's go to Kevin in Illinois. Kevin. Hey, Jim Booyah. How are you doing today, Booyah, I'm right back at you, Kevin. How's it going? Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. But Kindrel Holdings, stock symbol KD, spun yes. off November 4th by IBM. Doesn't seem to be doing real well. What's your opinion? Well, I mean, I know this is a word that's overused in the stock market. But it is cheap. And now, how can it bring out value? I don't know yet. Uh, it's run by Martin Schroeder. There's, there's really billions in revenues here. Uh, if I own the stock, I would wait to see what happens. It's got a very small market cap versus its sales. But I'm not in a hurry to say you got to own it right now. Let's go to Stephen in my home state of New Jersey. Stephen. Oh, yeah, Jim. This is Steve from New Jersey and a member of your CNBC Investing Club. Well, I sure hope I hear you tomorrow. Be on our conference call at 1230. It's going to knock your socks off. (laughs) I've been a longtime investor in gold and silver, Jim, both in bullion and newsmatic coins as a hedge about inflation. I've done rather well over the years and wonder if it's time to cash in and move over to the new hedge protector, Coinbase, now that it's come down somewhat. With the threat of inflation in the horizon a real issue, we all need a hard asset protection. Are you concerned with its recent market volatility? And would you favor a move to Coinbase rather than actual Bitcoin? Well, I tend not to, to um, talk my own book here, and I can't own any stocks, but I do own some Ethereum. Remember, I've always felt that gold and now crypto are good hedges. And I'm not backing away. Why did I pick Ethereum? Because that's the one that I find most people are transacting in. I'd rather own that than I would own Coinbase. And uh, while I keep it at a place that I wish were a little more secure, frankly, and therefore I don't uh, recommend that aspect, I do think that that's a better hedge than the actual common stock of a Coinbase company. Tonight's chartist says the charts are making him feel pretty bullish about the S&P 500 through the end of the year. I agree with them. 
Now, much more man. I remember, I do think there should be a dip, but you know, I, I like what I see. Mad Money uh, got we got tons ahead, including one of the most exciting companies I follow, and I know these guys personally. It's Everest Life Science CW. Could the medical device maker be well positioned for a post-COVID breakout to the upside? I'm talking the company's top brass. What a pipeline. Then there's one key theme that is bringing some of Wall Street's biggest companies into the forefront of profit and social change. I'm going to reveal what it is. And, of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. As we head toward 2022, we're starting to get a sense of what should work next year. With the Fed turning less friendly, we prefer tangible stories over conceptual ones, meaning among companies with actual earnings and earnings growth, especially if they've got a reopening kicker. Take Edwards Life Sciences. It's the metal device maker with some terrific non-invasive heart valve replacements and surgical monitoring gear. Now, this has been a long-term fabulous winner. We have liked it for as long as I can remember. But it did take a hit last year because COVID made it very difficult for people to get surgery. Anything that could be postponed was postponed, even if it shouldn't have been. Edwards sold off hard on Omicron worries, but in the last few weeks, it's come back with a vengeance. More importantly, the company just held its annual investor conference, where management laid out some pretty bullish forecasts for next year. Now, this thing's within four bucks of its September all-time high. I'm wondering if it's getting ready to break out to the upside. I'm not thinking about the downside right here. So don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with Michael Musalem. He's the chairman and CEO of Edwards Life Sciences. Met him a long time ago. Voice love the story. You know that. Let's get a better picture of where we're going. Michael, welcome back to Mad Money. Yeah, thanks, Jim. My pleasure to be here. Well, this analyst day was really extraordinary. And I want you to try to give people, there's a kind of a nice story here. And the story is you save lives. You get people out of the hospital faster. It's much less messy what happens in the hospital. And you're saving the system maybe billions of dollars. Is that a good read on what you talked about? It is. We're, we're very fortunate to be in the business of helping people have longer lives, better lives, and at the same time save the healthcare system money. We call that the triple win. When we get that right, we are in a position to transform care, and then we end up with a rewarding place for people to work uh, and, a, and a rewarding stock as well, and we help a lot of patients along the way. Well, you know, I met you right when my late father was still alive, and he talked to me about a thing called TAVR, and I'm like, I pretended to know what TAVR was, and of course I Googled it. It's transcatheter aortic valve replacement, but it really is this revolutionary, and amazingly, it's still revolutionary, isn't it? It really is. You know, uh, interestingly enough, it was approved in the U.S. 10 years ago. This is our 10th anniversary of approval in the U.S. And even though it was revolutionary at the time and there were some spectacular statements made when it was approved, it has improved dramatically over that period of time. We've been able to make the system smaller and, and less invasive. There's been less complications. The patients recover faster. There have been remarkable improvements over the years. And so now these are becoming procedures that happen routinely in uh, over 800 hospitals across the U.S. Now, in your analyst, Dave, you are actually talking about pretty much the whole product line is going to have some very interesting uh, achievements and milestones in 2022. Uh, why don't you run through some of those? Because to me, it says that this story is not done. Oh, no. A matter of fact, we are just getting started. So uh, we're going to have nice sales growth, double digit and, and earnings growth even faster than that in 2022. But what's most important is we're going to be advancing our agenda. In transcatheter aortic valves, 
we think that market uh, and that opportunity has not penetrated much at all. That in terms of the number of people that should get that therapy, we're at very low percentages. And one of the ways that we're attacking that not only is to improve our technology, but to do important clinical trials that demonstrate when you postpone tra treating your disease, it's not good for you. It leads to more heart disease. And so we think TAVR is going to grow significantly. That's the biggest component of Edwards sales. Uh, we also have real advancements coming forward in our surgical heart valve business where people are transitioning to our more durable tissue treatments. And instead of get, people getting mechanical valves, so it might mean that they have a lifetime of blood thinners, that instead they can get a tissue valve and feel comfortable that they're going to have the durability they need to avoid another surgery. And in critical care, we've got transformations going on that rather than just monitoring patients and looking backwards in terms of how they're doing, that we're able to apply apply algorithms and be able to be predictive and smart about what might be coming and help clinicians head off problems. So we've got a lineup not only of, of growth, but we're, it's going to be a big year of investment. You know, we routinely spend 17, 18% of our sales in research and development. We're investing in infrastructure, new capacity, and especially this new research, which is going to be important in the years to come. Well, so you have a, a Terrific section, this is page 10 of the deck, critical care shifting focus to smart recovery. So it's not just the operation itself, it's, it's something after that. I thought this was ingenious, and you should talk about it for us. Yeah, so in critical care, we have a reputation of being able to be highly accurate in terms of monitoring a person that's going through a big surgery or in an ICU And one of the things that we measure is pressure and pressure waves very accurately. Um, what we know is that when, pressure, when patients have a low blood pressure condition for a while during their surgery, their recovery is not nearly as good. And a matter of fact, there's mortality associated with that. And so by being able to have large databases and smart algorithms, we're able to give uh, clinicians, and it's often it's an anesthesiologist, a prediction that say there's an 80% chance that you're going to have a low pressure event in the next 15 minutes. And it allows them to head it off before it happens just by giving them some hints. So what you're doing basically, it, what I love about Edwards Life Science, the earlier you get, uh, you get tested, you get checked, the earlier you can use your uh, your valves, and the earlier after, and as soon as it's after the operation, you're prepared to be able to help people there too. I think both these things mean that the market is really. I'm not saying in its infancy that wouldn't be right, but you've got a lot more ground that you can make up and make and make for shareholders. There a, a lot, Jim. And one of the points that we made during the investor conference is today the the sales from the segments that Edwards serves are around ten billion dollars. We think that's going to approximately double by to 2028 to around 20 billion dollars. And the reason is that these procedures are getting better. And you take something like Taver that you and your your father experienced to some extent. Uh, these are procedures now that instead of open heart surgery, you have a procedure that's taking approximately 45 minutes. The patients, in many cases, are not being anesthetized. You have about 80% of the patients going home the next day, and they're actually going to their home. They're not going to an intermediate care or nursing home. They're going home. And those are very important factors for patients. 
And it begs the question that why shouldn't you treat this progressive disease like you do cancer? Why would you right now we wait until this, the disease is extreme and severe before it's treated? One of the things that we hope to prove with these big clinical trials that we're doing is that earlier treatment is better for the patient. Well, I, I know it is. I think this is a great idea. It can be preventative. You don't have to wait until the event. Uh, and, and that's because you, you guys really have the doctors thinking about this, which I know from personal experience. Okay, that's Michael Musalam. He's the chairman and CEO of Edwards Life Sciences. This is an amazing company. And Michael's done incredible things to save lives. The company is extraordinary. And money's back in for the break. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The Lightning Round is next. It is time to for the Lightning Round. And then the Lightning Round's over. Are you ready? Ski day. Time for the Lightning Round. I'm going to start with Kenneth in New York. Kenneth. Hey, how you doing, Jim? Booyah. Booyah, Kenneth. What's going on? Hey, thanks for what you do for investors. Oh, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Hey, so I want to ask you about an electric vehicle stock, uh, ticker symbol EVGO. You know, I got to tell you, Kenneth, EVGO, I know it sounds good. I know we looked at these stars, but I have really pulled in my horns. I like Enphase Energy, okay? That is the one I like. It's, I've looked at it from the CBC, uh, that, the great 50 millennial index we put together, next-gen 50. It's Enphase Energy, that's one. I know it's a high-dollar amount, but it's a better company. David in California. David. Hi, Jim. David here from Newport Beach, California. Oh, lucky guy. What's going on? <laughs> Man, not much going on. I love your show. I love oh, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you do for us. Um, Jim, I have a question. I've been investing on a company called Big Commerce Holding, and their growth and revenue looks really good. But the stock is down. I don't get it. I'm just... Well, I think that this is involving the concept of the concept. I've been saying these conceptual versus the tangible. This is a conceptual stock. It's using... The company's losing a lot of money, so it's lost its luster as we raise rates. That's what happens. It's a strange interaction... But it's tried and true, and that's why that stock is going to have a hard time here. But thank you for the kind comments. Let's go to Anthony in New York. Anthony. Yes, I own LDI, Loan Depot. Oh, man, Anthony, that is tough. I mean, it's tough enough to own J.P. Morgan. you got to own Loan Depot. I'm going to tell you that, yeah, look, it's at 5 bucks. Do I want to tell you to sell it at 5 bucks? I mean, look, you could go to 4 or 3. I don't expect a lot of upside. How about Steve in Illinois? Steve. Jim, while off recent highs, my stock is Marquita. Yeah. Oh, God, debit cards. I mean, I know I should be more enthusiastic about some of these stocks. But again, I'm focused on what the Fed's doing and what rates are doing and what the recovery's doing. And in that situation, you don't want this stock. Let's go to Ted in New York. Ted. Booyah. What's up, JC? Booyah, man. What's going on? As it falls, I keep buying. Alibaba is my golden goose. Well, man, your golden goose could be cooked. I don't know. I mean, look, here's the way I look at it. It's down 46%. I'm not going to tell you you have to sell some stock down 46%. That said, you know, any time that I have said, you know what, China's a green light in the last three years, it's been wrong. So I'm starting to learn. Don't be wrong. Let's go to Didi in Texas. Didi. 
Hi, um, Dr. Kramer. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, my you're question. quite welcome, Dee Dee. You're quite welcome. What's up? My question is about um, Harley Davidson, ticker symbol HOG. I think they're reinventing themselves. I like what they have in the stores, but then again, they have to get younger. They keep trying to get younger, and they can't. And some of the foreign companies still have some terrific, terrific brands. I'm going to put this. I'm going to say the, give you the no sign on that one. Let's do Andrew in Missouri. Andrew. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Calling from Big Mo. What's up? Look, looking at K N B E. No before. All right. Um, this is a software security company, and you know I always defer to my betters. And my betters here are Palo Alto Networks, P A N W. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Can America's key companies reinvent their way into a profitable future? Kramer shares a cautionary tale or two that you won't want to miss. Next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. They don't make those. Check Google. I'll Google it for the break. I'm Googling they're them. Very, they're very heavy. Anyway, you need a large battery I'm, to propel I'm, that I'm using, I'm using the Google box. It's this really cool thing. Yeah, I know. Yes. I remember that. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. They say necessity is the mother of invention, but reinvention is what makes you a necessity. Yet companies almost never get enough credit for reinventing themselves. This morning, Bank of America hit Honeywell with a downgrade. It rubbed me the wrong way because this is a company that reinvents itself every time it seems to be running out of steam. Darius Adamczyk, terrific CEO, he's been willing to sacrifice sacred cows. He's offloaded classic Honeywell businesses like Residio. That's the thermostat division. Picked up faster-growing businesses like supply chain management, building up building as a service technology. Darius subscribes to the philosophy of his predecessor, Dave Cody. And if you've read Dave's book, Winning Now, Winning Later, you know that means adapt or die. So when I see Honeywell getting hit today, it makes me think, well, you're getting terrific buying opportunity. Because if there's a problem, management will simply reinvent the business all over again, which is what makes this stock a necessity for your portfolio. Let me give you another example. Chevron. Were these guys really planning to spend $10 billion to create cleaner forms of energy and reduce their carbon footprint not that long ago? Ah, it certainly wasn't the original plan. Hey, matter of fact, $10 billion is more than triple what they wanted to spend not that long ago. But CEO Mike Worth wants to make sure that Chevron will still be around in 2050 and still be dominating the energy industry. Hence, all these investments in stuff like carbon capture. And that's why also renewed natural gas. And that's why it's going to be featured on my 1230 p.m. Investing Club event tomorrow. Reinvention is a big reason why I like Ford Motor, too. We're speaking to Ford CEO Jim Farley on tomorrow's call. He's only got a whole new technology business that will let you take your Ford truck and use it to receive orders via the cloud. Maybe for new decking. Then you get and send that order to, say, Home Depot in the cloud. And then they'll have the materials ready for you as soon as your truck pulls up. The results will be a dramatic decline in waiting times and paperwork for all sorts of small businesses, which is huge. Considering the infinite wait times in anything related to repair, remodeling, or construction these days, reinvention can also mean you're breaking up your business. Uh, United Technologies did it a great way when it spun off its climate control business as Carrier and its elevator business as Otis emerged the remaining aerospace division with Raytheon. That's the best analog for what's happening at Honeywell, and they got a lot of the same criticism back when it happened. Of course, not all reinvention works, at least at first. 
Even successful ones might take a little while to pan out for shareholders. For example, I very much respected Johnson Johnson General Electric for deciding to break themselves up into smaller, more rational segments. The market disagreed them, probably because Wall Street thought the parts were worth less than the whole. I think that's wrong. The new companies can focus on what they're good at and borrow money in order to take over the respective industries. The balance sheet should be good enough to do that. Obviously, these are the success stories. Over the long term, companies that can't change often cease to exist. Anyone remember Smith Corona, the old typewriter business that was established as a brand? When I got in the business, it tried to reinvent itself. It failed. Now there are probably 40 years worth of people who've never heard of Smith Corona, let alone Martian. I remember sent, spending, I remember sending spent film, you know, once you take it all, up to Rochester to get it developed. Yeah, I mean, that's right, younger people. There was a time when you had standalone cameras that wouldn't work without film, and then you ship the film off to Eastman Kodak in upstate New York, and then you get it back in a while. And that company diversified into pharma, buying Sterling Drug, because that business that I just described seems pretty stupid. Uh, rather, but they didn't address the core decline, and, well, got them nowhere. The great reinventors, they're powerful forces of change that constantly remake on the fly, both themselves and, in some cases, our entire society. When a company's got a long track record of reinvention, you can't look at a snapshot of a single moment. Got to consider all the things management could do to transform the whole enterprise. And that's what I like about capitalism. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.